Look at y'all studious out there. Anybody read this passage beforehand? One, two, three, four. All right. So, um, we are still in chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel. And I'll be honest, this is another one of those passages that uh, kind of causes some consternation for us when we're trying to grab a hold of what it means, um, and especially when we have skeptics, uh, skeptics who doubt the basis for our faith. There, there are people who just, they, they look at the Scripture and they say, see, there's a problem here. See, there's a problem here. See, there's a problem here. And, and this is one of those places where they can look at it and say, see, there's a problem here. And if you're not prepared, um, you're going to be doing a lot of tap dancing and try to answer, see, there's a problem here. Okay? Um, up until this point, we've already dealt with some controversial passages as, as it really does look like Jesus is talking about two separate events. Right there, 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 there's that whole. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then there's that whole. He's talking about the consummation of the kingdom, and there's there's just for some people there's a dividing line in the in the chapter, and for some it's between verses 28 and 29. Up through 28, he's talking just about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then from 29 on, he's talking about the consummation of his kingdom. Other people move it to verse 35 and 36. Or verse 35 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and everything else is talking about the consummation of the kingdom. And then you have people like me who say, well, really, he's talking about both, right? So there's a lot of places for confusion here in this chapter. Now, it will not surprise you that I have been leaning very heavily on uh, uh, commentary from Dr. Sproul on the book of Matthew, uh, that should not come as a surprise to anybody. And there's there's a comment that he made for this passage where he said, it really would have been easier if Jesus had answered the disciples' questions like this. They asked the question, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign? And Jesus answers the question, when will these things happen? I'm going to tell you about the turmoil. I'm going to tell you about the tribulation, the false Christ, and all that kind of stuff. And then I'm going to end that part of the answer by saying, this generation will not pass away until these things come to pass. And then he answers the rest. That would have made life a whole lot easier for us who are studying this. Unfortunately, he didn't. He, he didn't separate he didn't make a dividing line. He didn't give us a nice clean break between the stuff that was definitely destruction of the temple and the stuff that is likely future consummation of the kingdom. He announced all the things that would happen from the destruction of the temple through the coming of man. And then he said, the generation won't pass away until these things come to pass. So the skeptic looks at it and says, well, Jesus said this generation won't pass away until all these things have come to pass. That means the coming of Jesus will come to pass before the generation passes away. 
obviously, Jesus was saying he would return within the next 40 years. And if you look at the rest of Scripture, if you look at the writings of Peter, the writings of Paul, the writings of John, if you look at the rest of the New Testament, all of the writers of the New Testament expected Jesus to come back within their lifetime. That means the skeptic isn't really approaching this from a position of complete and total ignorance. There's some things that they look at and they make wrong assumptions. Here they are looking at the words of the text. Jesus said there would be all this tribulation, there would be wars and rumors of wars, there'd be earthquakes, there'd be disasters, there'd be false prophets and false Christs, there'd be this big tribulation, and then Jesus would return, and then he says this generation won't pass away until all this happens. That's a pretty plain reading of Scripture, right? I don't know if you looked at your calendar lately, but it's been more than 40 years since Jesus said this. And that's why I have been trying to make very certain that we understand this passage correctly. Now, some people will answer the skeptic by saying that Jesus was speaking of the generation in a different context. Instead of meaning that 40-year period, Jesus was talking about the type of people that were around at that point in time. Uh, in the context that Jesus has been preaching and teaching and stuff, that would be the scribes and the Pharisees and all of their heresy and all of their legalism and all of the stuff that they had going on. So when Jesus said that this generation will not pass away, some people would say what he means is that that kind of false religion is going to persist until he comes back. That is a possible interpretation of the word used for generation. That is possible. And because of the way he was talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, it's plausible. It does kind of fit. Um, I find it unlikely that that's what he was talking about, but that's, that's my opinion. There are those who are more educated than me that lean that direction. And then there are those who are going to say that Jesus is off the hook for his statement about this generation because of our passage today. So all of this has been the introduction to get us to verse 36. Because this is one of those, this is one of those passages I really wish, I really wish I had, had decided to do something other than preaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so I could skip this one. But I can't. So let's all stand for our passage today. Matthew 24, 36 through 44. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding in a mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, 
he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let's pray. Father, once again, I ask you to help us to handle your word correctly. Help me to present the message that your people need to hear today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So do you see why people might want to let Jesus off the hook? Because earlier he said this generation will not pass away. We're well past 40 years. The generation is dead and gone. And so is their grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren. So people will read this and they'll say, see, look, Jesus said he didn't know when it was going to happen. So we can let him off the hook. Nobody knows the hour or the day except the Father. So when he said this generation won't pass away, we can just say he was mistaken. Let me borrow from Paul when he answers a couple of questions, some rhetorical questions that come up in his text in the book of Romans. Uh, and and I'm going to I'm going to use his most famous God forbid why on earth would you ever think it was okay to say that Jesus was mistaken that that just I can't wrap my head around that how could an earnest christian think that it is better to say Jesus made a mistake than to say I don't understand what he said but that's what they do If we accept that Jesus was speaking prophetically through all of this, and all of the things that he said were going to happen, were going to happen, but he made a mistake, he got the timing wrong, what does that make him? A false prophet. What what was supposed to happen to false prophets? (laughs) Yeah, they get taken outside the camp and stoned to death. Why? Because they're misleading God's people. They're leading them astray, right? That means that all of his teaching goes out the window. That means this prophecy and everything else that he taught out the window. That means that his death on the cross out the window. The resurrection never happened. If he was a false prophet, he would not have been raised from the dead, which would leave the church with no hope. Why would you ever think that it's better to say Jesus made a boo-boo? I can't wrap my head around it. I would sooner stand up and tell you that I really, really do not have the foggiest idea what Jesus was talking about in chapter 24 of Matthew than to tell you that he made a mistake. Now, I got to ask you a question, and I want you to be honest. Don't give me the Sunday school answer. (laughs) No, I said don't give me the Sunday school answer. All right, I want you to be perfectly honest. When you read a passage like this that clearly says that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, does not know something, does it make you at least a little bit uncomfortable? It should. It really should. It, it, hear me out. How 
does the Son of God, the omniscient, have a limitation on his knowledge? Since he is not a created being, but he is the eternal coexistent Son. Go to the beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, right? And who was the Word? Jesus was. He was the agent of creation, which means he was the one who created, right? He is God. And here he says, the son doesn't know something. Stop. That's where the gears start grinding like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Jesus is God. God knows everything. Obviously, Jesus knows something about these future events because what has he been doing? He's been prophesying about these future events. He just said it's going to happen within the generation. So he does have an idea of the day and the hour in some way, shape, or form. Now, could it be that because the knowledge would have been too much to handle, he said this for the sake of the disciples? That's what Thomas Aquinas caught, uh, taught. He's the, um, in case you aren't familiar with the name, St. Thomas uh, is considered to be one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. Yes, he was Roman Catholic. However, that being put aside, he is probably one of the most knowledgeable people on Scripture in history, period, paragraph. He thought that Jesus was accommodating the weakness of the disciples. So when Jesus said the Son doesn't know, it was to get them to quit asking. Okay? Um, what what does that make his answer? Oh, like like false witness? Yeah, rewind. Go back to Paul's statement. God forbid... Don't be stupid, right? That throws the entire atonement right out the window. So how do we answer the question of Jesus' statement? Because i got to tell you, this is a tough one. Jesus said the Son doesn't know. We have to have a good understanding of who Jesus was. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning, not on purpose. I didn't do this, another one of those things, God coordinated, I didn't right? We have to understand the incarnation. We have to understand Jesus's nature. Fortunately, back at the end of the fifth century, there was a church council that came together in in Chalcedon. Uh, It was called the Council of Chalcedon. Surprise. They declared that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. By this, they mean that Jesus had a fully human nature He was a man, but he had a fully divine nature. He is God. And that those two natures did not in any way, shape, or form intermingle. So it's not that he was a divine man, which doesn't make any sense, because there's nothing about man that's divine, right? Nor was it that he was a human God, which, again, doesn't make any sense. There were, there was no point at which the two natures mixed together to make one. 
somehow. I don't know. It's God math. The two natures were able to exist in Jesus perfectly without corruption. Because he was fully man, we can look at the Gospels and we can see that there were times when he was operating in his human nature. He slept. Right? Now, if you look at all the times that he woke up really, 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 really early in the morning to pray, and you consider the fact that most of the stuff that happened over in Israel during the first century happened really, 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 really late at night, he didn't sleep a lot, but he slept. He ate. God does not have a need to eat. Jesus, in his human nature, had to eat. He walked. He traveled from place to place. God does not, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere all at one time. Jesus, in his human nature, had to count on the Shoe Leather Express to get from point A to point B. When he was born, okay, number one, he was born. That's 100% human nature, right? When he was a babe, when he was wrapped in swaddling cloth, when he cried out, yes, he was a baby, he cried. Babies do that. There ain't but three things that babies do well. They cry, they eat, and they suffer the consequences for eating. Okay? All three of those things were Jesus' human nature. What about his divine nature? This is one of those questions that the, the theologians ask when they, when they start dealing with this question of Jesus' nature, did the babe in the manger know the mysteries of the universe? So, yeah, there you go. Welcome to metaphysics. Welcome to philosophy. Welcome to trying to understand how Jesus was a human nature and had a divine nature. I hope nobody left their windows down. If you did, you might need a bucket when you get to the car. Um, There were also times when his divine nature peeked through. When, When Jesus came down off the mountain after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he was met by the leper at the foot of the hill, and he reached out and he touched the leper, and the leper was healed and made whole. That was divine nature. That was that was Jesus' divine nature. There is nothing in Jesus' human nature that would cause that to happen. That was Jesus' divine nature. When, when Jesus, and I don't know why he chose to do it this way, when he spit in the mud and put it on the guy's eyes and restored his sight, that was Jesus' divine nature. When, when Jesus was in the, the region of the, the, the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes, depending on which gospel you read, and the the demoniac who had been chained up in the tombs, who was cutting himself and crying out at night, and all that kind of stuff, legion, right? When Jesus said, see that herd of pigs over there? Get out. That was Jesus' divine nature. That was not Jesus' human nature. If you want to see how demons react to a human nature, look at the sons of Sceva, the sons of the Jewish exorcist, who decided that since Paul was able to cast out all these demons in Jesus' name, 
they were just going to go in and they were going to use Jesus' name. Remember the story? And the demon responds to him, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, who are you? And then he decides to beat the living snot out of these seven sons of Sceva, and they run away naked. Okay, not just beaten, but humiliated. That's how a demon acts to a human nature. Okay? Jesus' divine nature can say, leave, and they obey. During the transfiguration, Jesus' divine nature peaked out a little bit. And, of course, we looked at it in Sunday school this morning, the beginning of the book of Revelation. We got to see Jesus' divine nature 100% with the brightness not turned down, right? So in verse 36, if we understand this about Jesus' nature, about his divine and his human nature not being intermingled, in verse 36, which nature is he talking about? His human nature. As a man, he didn't know the day and the hour. He didn't know when these things were going to come to pass. It wasn't a lie. He was telling the truth. He was not accommodating the disciples. He was telling the truth. He only knew what the divine nature had communicated to him, that it was going to occur within the span of the 40 years. Simple as that. Now, I got one of these fancy, fancy schmancy studying words that I learned when I was going through uh, my bachelor's program on studying the Bible. There's, we have to look at the whole pericope. I should have put it on a slide. Okay. Pericope. It's spelled, uh, P-E-R-I, peri, and then C-O-P-E, cope. It's not pericope. It's pericope. Um, Basically, it's the whole paragraph, all right? If you have one of those Bibles that puts the little titles above certain paragraphs or certain sections, that's generally considered to be one pericope. So that's that's what I'm talking about. We have to look at the whole passage, not just that verse, in order to understand the point of what Jesus was telling them. So if you start with verse 35, 36, sorry, he says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. That part's easy. We just dealt with that. But let's keep going. He says, as were the days of Noah. There's a little three-letter word that I left out there. Four. Okay? Four. Like, therefore, we have to figure out what it's there for. Okay, what is he tying us back to? Why does nobody know? What are the implications of nobody knowing when this is going to happen? He says it's going to be like the days of Noah. And what were the days of Noah like? Well, life went on, right? And here you've got this guy who is righteous in the Lord's sight. This does not mean Noah was perfect. This does not mean Noah didn't sin. This means that Noah lived a life of repentance. He did sin, but then he repented, just like Job. Job was not perfect, but he was righteous. Noah is picked out by God, and God says, Hey, Noah, I want you to build the world's biggest box, 
and I want you to have it ready so that when I declare the time is right, all these animals are going to show up, and they're going to go into the box, and you're going to take your family into the box, and you're going to shut up the box, and then it's going to rain like you've never seen it rain before, even if you lived on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Because we've seen it rain. Okay? And it's not just going to rain. It's not just going to be waters coming from the sky. It's going to be waters coming from the deep. The oceans are going to rise. There's going to be springs popping up all over the place. The whole world's going to be covered in water, and you're going to live in that box until I tell you to get out. What are Noah's neighbors going to say to him? Yeah. Noah, really? What's with the box? Oh, it's going to flood. How bad can it be? Oh, the whole world. Gotcha. You might want to check on those grapes that you've been hitting, buddy. I think they've gone a little over the edge, right? Life went on. People were getting married. They had families. They worked. They ate. They had parties. They took vacations. All right, maybe not the vacation part. That's pretty much a a 19th and 20th century thing, right? Life went on. Noah's building his ark. Life went on. Nothing changed. The kids went to school, the equivalent, right? Dad went to work. Mom made the bread. Everything, it, it was life as usual. Status quo. And then all of a sudden, what happened? Now, if I'm Noah's neighbors, I'm going to pay attention when, when we start having elephants show up where there haven't been elephants before. Okay? And, and aardvarks and, and, and just go through the list of animals, right? And if, if you're a fan of Ken Ham and, and Answers in Genesis and, and the Institute for Creation Research, there were probably some big lizards that showed up at the same time, right? I'm going to take note. What, what, what was that? Was that a giraffe? When, when did we get giraffes? Where are they going? Oh, they're going to Noah's box. And what did he say about that box? that rain? All of a sudden, life changed. And for the people who were outside the ark, life stopped. And Jesus says, that's how it's going to be when I return. Life goes on. Life will keep happening. Now, a little bit of little bit of history, a little bit of Bill history. When I was a really young Christian, so we were talking nineteen ninety nine. Um, our work center got relocated into a different building, onto an oddball floor. A terrible office for a computer maintenance location. It was carpeted. There was no humidity, so it was really dry. There was a lot of static. We broke a lot of stuff. Not good. We moved into this office. There were a couple of desks in there, and I found a book in one of the desks. Um, it was around Christmas time that we moved in. It was winter time, so work was kind of slow. So I opened up the desk to put my stuff into it, and there's a book. It was a book by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. It was book two of a series that they made a lot of money selling. The name of the book was Tribulation Force. The name of the series is Left Behind. Okay? Now, keep in mind, I am less than two years into my Christian walk. Okay? 
And at that point in time, I read everything having to do with Scripture. I didn't care if it was Old Testament. I, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, right, which is a heavy read. It's, it's not a light reading book. It's a reference book. It is not a sit-down-and-read novel. I devoured that thing. If it caused me to reflect on what Scripture said, I read it. If it caused me to go to the Bible, I read it. If it had anything to do with Christianity, I read it. So I read this book, and it's a fiction book. They make very clear it's a fictional book. And it is 100% dispensational, premillennial, pre-trib rapture fiction. Now, I'm not saying that those things are fiction yet. <laughs> I'm saying the book was fiction. If it sounded like theology, I read it. And so, I read those books. I went out and bought the whole series up to like book 13. What? Okay, then I'm short one. Anyways, um, I didn't buy the prequels or the, the spinoffs or any of that. And the reason I bring all this up is because if you look at verses 40 and 41, they are often used to support the idea of a rapture. Bear with me. Look, if I go long today, I'm just keeping you out of the rain. So I'm doing you a favor. That's it. Verses 40 and 41 are often used to support the idea of a rapture of the church. The verses say two men are in a field, one is taken, the other is not. Two women are at the mill. One is taken, one is not. All right? Now, it is possible, but unlikely, that Jesus is mixing his metaphors here. Okay? That all of a sudden he's changing things up. That he is talking about, on that day, all of a sudden, one person's going to go up into the sky to be with Jesus, and the other person's going to be left in the field holding the one side of the plow. Okay? It's possible. However... He just finished saying it will be like the days of Noah, right? Now, when the flood came in the days of Noah, who were the people that were taken? They were the people that were outside the boat, okay? They weren't the righteous ones. The righteous ones were in the boat. Everybody knew where they were. They were in the boat. Just like the righteous ones today are in Christ, Okay, so Jesus says that in it's going to be just like the days of Moah, of Moah, Noah. It's been one of those days. If the metaphor stays together, then the ones that are going to be taken are the ones who are unrighteous, not the church. If we're consistent with what Jesus is talking about. In the days of Noah, the ones taken are the ones who are outside of Christ, the ones who are outside of the ark. That fits the context of the rest of the passage. Because he says, Therefore, verse 42, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. What do we mean, stay awake? 
Huh? Stay alert. Okay. I have beat this horse to death, and y'all are probably tired of hearing me say it, but I'm going to say it again. The life of a Christian is a life that is supposed to be deliberate, calculated, reasoned, and thought out on purpose. In other words, it's supposed to be alert. It's supposed to be awake. We're not supposed to be wandering through this life sleepwalking. We're supposed to be on guard for the day of Christ's return. We're supposed to be prepared for the day of Christ's return. Now, think about this in the bigger context of what Jesus has been talking about. I've been telling you that this chapter is about both the destruction of Jerusalem and the future consummation of the kingdom, right? So let's put it in the context of the destruction of Jerusalem. He's teaching his disciples. He just got done telling them how bad everything's going to be, right? He just got done telling them the signs that they need to look for, that Jerusalem is going to fall, that he's going to come in judgment on Jerusalem. And when they see the signs, what are they supposed to do? Get out of town because it's not going to go well for the people that are in town, right? And here he says, pay attention, be alert, stay awake. Why? Because it's going to happen with no notice. If you get caught flat-footed, you are going to be left behind, not in the sense of a rapture coming and taking the church out of the world, but in the sense of you're going to be stuck in Jerusalem during the great tribulation that he just talked about. Therefore, stay awake. Now, if I put it in the perspective of the consummation of the kingdom, what are we commanded to do until Jesus returns? Go make disciples. How do you make disciples? What's step one? Okay. Yeah, there you go. Paul wrote it to Timothy. Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. Right? There is nothing worse. <coughs> so right now on Keesler, we have a, 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 a two-year-long inspection cycle that we are in that is about to finish up in October. There is nothing worse than saying for two years, I'm doing my job, I'm doing my job, I'm doing my job, and having an inspector show up and say, okay, show me how you do your job, and your answer is, I don't know. Right? That's, that's, that's not good. We have to know what it means to be a disciple. So we need to be growing in our discipleship. That's step one. What's step two? To make disciples. We have to build relationships with people because discipleship is a relationship, right? So we work on our relationship with Christ. Then we work on relationships with people, right? Vertical, horizontal. And then what do we do in those relationships? We got to share the gospel with them, right? Because before they can become a disciple, they have to become a follower. They have to become a convert. So we have to witness to them. We have to tell them who Jesus is, which we can't do if we're not working on our discipleship, right? And then we have to teach them the things that Jesus commanded. We have to teach them what it means to be a disciple. These are not things we can do if we just take our life and put it on cruise control 
and tie the steering wheel in place because we're driving through the western side of Utah. Flat, straight, nothing in the way. That's not our life. Our life is full of potholes and uphills and downhills and, and sometimes the bridge is out. So we take detours. And sometimes there's cars in the way. Right? Our life has to be lived on purpose. The only way we're going to be obedient to making disciples and being alert for Jesus to show up again is for us to be prepared, to be alert, to be awake, to be disciples ourselves. This fits both. Jesus goes further, and he gives us another metaphor, right? He says, if the master of the house knew when the thief was going to show up, he would have stayed awake then. If I know that somebody is going to rob my business at 2 o'clock in the morning, right, I'm going to have the cops at my place at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm probably going to let them in at about 1 o'clock so they can be inside and ready in case the thief shows up early. Right? Why do most houses get broken into at night? Because we're sleeping. Right? If I know that the thief is going to come in the middle of the night, then I'm going to stay awake through the middle of the night. Right? The reason Jesus wants the disciples to understand that nobody knows, not the angels in heaven and not the Son in his human nature is because if Jesus told us, I am coming back on August 27th, 2024, at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, when would we start worrying about making disciples? Maybe the day before. Probably 10 minutes before. And for some of us, it would have been, oh, is that today? Right? He wants us to be on guard against sin in our own lives. He wants us to be ready for His return by doing what He's commanded us to do. Now, back to His statement about knowing the day or the hour. When you look at the entirety of the passage and you understand it in the right context, the context of the rest of the chapter, The significance of Jesus' statement is not that he doesn't know. It is to be persistently on guard and ready for his return at all times. As Noah was building the ark, he was prepared for the flood. He knew that God had promised he was going to be able to complete the task. But did that mean that he was just sitting around waiting for God to zap him with a strike of lightning and before he put the next board on the box? No. We don't want Jesus to find us at his return idly wasting time. We want to be ready for him to come back so that when he does come back, when there is the trumpet blast, when the dead in Christ rise first and then the rest of us who are left go to meet him in the air, we return to the earth in a triumphal parade for him to establish his kingdom. 
If I'm building a kingdom from living stones, I don't want to use the ones that are dead. That show no signs of life. It's interesting to me that the, the word sleep is used as a euphemism for death. And Jesus wants us to be awake, alive, involved, on purpose for his kingdom.